So when I, you know, when I think about what Crotty is talking about in Keynes, I think he's arguing specifically that the dampening of the radicalism of Keynes's message was a political choice to try to gain something that would adequately that would adequately dampen the worst aspects of capitalism that it was a pragmatist approach to transforming capitalism into something that was better for society as a whole the challenge is that when you i mean i i invoke eric olin wright in the um in the book or or in in the piece rather whose book how to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century contrasts four different approaches to four different alternative approaches to capitalism welcome to reviving growth keynesianism a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. For today's guest, we're joined by Nina Eihacker, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Rhode Island. She works at the cross-section between post-Keynesian macro and international political economy. We're here to discuss some of her writing on green industrial policy, socialism, and fiscal space, all of which will be linked to in the show notes. Uh, Nina, welcome to RGK. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, we'd like to start by getting to know our guests a little bit. So how, how did you get into uh, post-Keynesian macro and to, uh, to these topics in particular? If I recall correctly, you're a Jim Crotty student. I am a Jim Crotty student, yeah. So I, as an undergraduate, majored in economics because it seemed like the best thing to do for, I guess, the, how shall I put it, the way to address the bigger problems of the, of the international sphere was either by providing medical care or getting money to people who didn't have it somehow. And I got a C in bio. So I decided I was going to focus on economics. And at the same time, I hoped that economics would give the tools for understanding why people in some parts of the world were poorer than others and why structures existed to keep people impoverished elsewhere while people in the US and Europe and other developed economies seemed to be doing okay. That's a big simplification. But unfortunately, in my economics classes as an undergrad, there was very little of that. There was a lot of there's a lot of neoclassical theory that looked at efficiency and the effects of changing one policy versus another. And none of it really seemed to fit. But despite my dismay, I guess I never lost hope. And a professor of mine, as an, when I was an undergrad, recommended that I apply to the University of Massachusetts for graduate school. And as luck would have it, I picked that program despite not really knowing anything about its history as a radical or heterodox economics program. 
I just knew that when I looked at the faculty bios, people seemed to be doing work that fit with my broad interests in terms of power and inequity and how economics played into that or could fix it. So, you know, when I, when I started grad school, I had very little, I had a zero background really in the, the great thinkers. My undergraduate program had nothing in, in nothing that really got into any of that. I think the most radical person I knew about as an undergraduate was John Rawls mm-hmm. and the um, veil of uncertainty, yeah. which is interesting and great. And um, that, that was about all I, I knew of it. I thought that theory was dumb because theory didn't explain the world as I understood it. And it took a while to understand that delving into theory itself was a thing one could do. I don't know that other economics programs would have introduced me to these ideas, but as luck would have it, I was one of the last few students, I was one of the last classes of students that were taking classes while Jim Crotty was still teaching. So I happened to take his class on Keynes and Minsky and Schumpeter, and the ideas in that class made a lot of sense to me, and they seemed practical, and I also just enjoyed talking to Jim Crotty. So to some degree, it was, this is my favorite faculty member. If he's into this stuff, there must be something to it. And to some degree, it's been in the years since, um, <clears throat> since writing a dissertation about financial deregulation and crisis, and then spending some time trying to do more applied macro stuff to fit the, to fit a more mainstream economics profile of what, of what counts as economics. I've come back to I've come back in some ways to the history of thought and thinking in a broader way about how post-Keynesian, how Keynesian and post-Keynesian theory work. And on the topic of Keynes, you know, with the onset of the pandemic, I actually pulled my copy of, I pulled Keynes's book down, blanking on its title. General theory. Um, Yeah, general theory, right, Uh that one. reread it. And what was amazing to me was I realized that in the past decade of teaching macro classes, I had been teaching the the model that he builds up in that book. And suddenly all of this stuff, like all of the confusing language and the rhetorical flourishes just felt like pleasant, um, pleasant frames for, for the theory. Now that I could completely understand what it was he was describing and what was novel about it and how uncertainty continues to play a role. And in a way, I was um, struck by both how good of a simple explanation it gives of the way actors and institutions interact in the world. I was also struck by the nuance of it. A lot of people may, I think there's a a caricature of Keynesianism as government good, Mm -hmm. um, firms bad, or government good, finance bad deficits good, um, deficit reduction bad. And I think that there are much more nuanced stories about all of those things that come out of Keynes. And, and I just had a much a better renewed appreciation for what he was doing with it and, and how, it, how it could be applied in different ways going forward. So that's the, um, that's the sort of long story, I guess, <laughs> I came how I came to Keynes and post-Keynesian thought. It's always seemed like a better, more pragmatic grappling with the way the world works than other theories. And the essence of compromise in it also 
spoke to me as someone who has worked in organizations and has had to make compromises to make stuff happen. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I can't imagine a more uh, useful approach to economics than the uncertainty that Keynes highlights over the past, you know, three, four years, uh, in terms of like the radical changes that we've seen. I'm curious, when you went back and reread the general theory, was there, was there anything that spoke to, like, what was happening at that moment that... Uh, really solidified in your mind any of this stuff or was it or was it the the coherence of the the theory in general that really sort of felt enlightening so the coherence in general was was enlightening i mean i think i remember as as a graduate student we had the assignment of summarizing chapter two Hmm. which is challenging because it starts in one place it seems to be telling a certain story and then in like the last two paragraphs he does a 180 degree shift and says and actually this is all an elaborate ploy to say that none of this actually works the way the the way that neoclassical theory predicts it should. And so what I found when I went back was first, I didn't find that pivot so disorienting. It was much easier to follow along with, it was much easier to follow along with what he was saying. It was, I would compare it to, I would compare it to the experience of like throwing a baseball years after. So, you know, I was not a very athletic kid, but I had to play sports a lot growing up and I just wasn't very good at it. And I was surprised at some point in high school and then in college to find myself with a baseball glove and a baseball and find it was so much easier. Just like the, the lived experience of, of stuff made this, I don't know, simple, but complicated process suddenly feel very, much suddenly feels so much easier and I would think I think it was something similar with coming back to Keynes it was like the experience of both teaching it but also living aspects of it really I don't know it it cohered in a way that I wasn't expecting it to well it's interesting that that you had to summarize chapter two because I know that there's there's a there's a big debate in how you interpret the general theory, right? Are you a chapter two person or are you a chapter twelve person? Are you, you know, or is, or is the real secret in chapter sixteen? You know, I don't know. So I, th- I think I'm a chapter. So I'm a chapter twelve person, but I secretly really like. I, th- I think it's chapter. Um, oh gosh, which one is it? It's, I like chapters twenty two and is it twenty four where he brings the world back in? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. I, so, so, I, I so, secretly so, really so you're, you're even you're even deeper into the text than. Uh... Yeah, I, I had to write a chapter about whether trade, whether whether it's good to have trade surpluses or not, huh. and I argue it's ambiguous. <laughs> but I'm really just borrowing from Keynes by saying huh. that because you know if you go to chapter 24 where he's talking about trade in the world, he argues that sometimes yeah. it makes sense to do it. And sometimes it makes sense to be conservative about how you approach these things. And other times it doesn't make sense to do that. Other times it makes more sense to spend and generate surpluses. If you, if you live in an economy that can bear the, the changes in currency, then why not? Why not right. spend, spend a little more? Right, right. So, and his ambiguity yeah. on the value of trade and free trade. I guess being the kind of like fairly radical move that he's making in the thirties, they're breaking with orthodoxy. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the deal. Like I, I really appreciate his ambiguity. Hmm. I remember in, I mean, I remember in grad school where it was common for faculty to, it was common for faculty and it was somewhat common for graduate students to have picked a theoretical camp Hmm. that they were in 
And Keynes is just more ambiguous than I think other theorists may may skew. And granted, you know, you can you can say so you can also say, are you a chapter two or a chapter 12 or a chapter 16 yeah. Keynesian? You can equally say, are you a treatise of monetary of money and interest? Are you yeah. national self-sufficiency? Are you general theory? Or are you the, the QJE paper in 19? Oh God, what year was it? Yeah, 1937. Yeah. And like, if we think about a lot of the arguments that, think about some of the arguments that happen in among the uh, Keynesian, broad, broad umbrella Keynesian about mm. what is Keynesian? What is not Keynesian? Who is Keynesian? Who is post-Keynesian? Who is merely Keynesian? Who is something else? Like it's Master possible, Keynesian. right? It's possible to, you know, reduce it to, something that's basically meaningless but but what i think is that the ambiguity i think the ambiguity throughout is a really refreshing right yeah um, it's it's it's, it's just a rich field that you can sort of play around in Mm -hmm. yeah so okay so that's you and Keynes. yes Um, (laughs) so returning briefly then to uh to the real world of today um you've written a piece called the case for more cylindras Mm. uh which is a a fairly provocative title, right? I mean, so cylindras, um, I mean, I was, you know, a baby when this happened, but um, it's famously a solar energy company that failed. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's taken to be sort of emblematic of government waste and maybe even corruption and democratic malfeasance. So so what is the case for more cylindras? So the backstory on on Solyndra is that Solyndra was a solar solar cell producing company that applied for funding from the Department of Energy. And the Department of Energy had a relatively new program that they were off- they were offering loans, uh, guaranteed loans, to innovators in the field of renewable energy. And this was good on the face of it because even in 2010 there was an understanding. I mean, even in 2005 there was an understanding that climate change was a thing, and it was good to cultivate alternatives to fossil fuels. So in addition, this was a program that made funds available in a time where there was constrained lending in the aftermath of the global financial crisis of 2008. So it was doing two things. It was promoting necessary projects from a like supply nuts and bolts standpoint. And it was also providing capital in a time where it was harder for firms to find that funding. So the problem for Solyndra was that they were unlucky, effectively. And I was actually looking at the details of this. And, you know, when we wrote that, when, when I wrote that piece with my co-author, Mark Paul, in 2021, we were not thinking about, we weren't thinking about future supply issues that were going to arise in other fields. We weren't, we, we simply weren't thinking I mean, I wasn't thinking, maybe he was, about that. And so Solyndra was unlucky because at the time that it received funding and was pursuing the the innovation it was getting at, and I forget precisely what Solyndra's deal was, but it was an innovative, I think it was in, in how the solar cells were designed. In that moment, there was a spike in the, is it a spike in the price of silicon? 
something happened so that either the material that they were providing a substitute for fell dramatically. I think the, the substitute they were developing, they were developing a substitute for silicon and the price of silicon fell dramatically in global commodity markets. And simultaneously, there was a gigantic government-initiated push in China to develop solar cell production. So the, the ground sort of fell out from under Solyndra. Their model, their, their innovation failed to, failed to play out because the circumstances of everything changed, changed well after the funding decisions had been made. And that, that's something that, that happens. And I think that what's interesting coming back to it now is thinking about how transformations abroad and the onset of a three-week holiday is going to block production of intermediate components that domestic firms in the U.S. need. Geopolitical emergencies are going to make it so that we can't get the commodities that we were expecting to have at a certain time on time. Or maybe ever. <laughs> you're you're like, talking you know, about the supply chain. Uh, and I'm talking about yeah, today. all of the yeah. supply chain turmoil that has happened since April of 2020. Um, all of that has become very clear for lots of people in in loads of circumstances. Like we have a donut shop in town that has a sign saying, "We're sorry, we don't have cream cheese. We don't have white chocolate anymore. We don't have all of these things that we expected to be able to have." And so, and you know, that's a silly example, maybe. You know, so the reality of the supply. So I, so going, taking back a step. Um, yeah. You know, when I was writing that, I wasn't thinking as much about the particulars of the supply side. Mm. I was thinking more about it in terms of demand in the sense of these firms want to spend, they need mm. funding to spend. But what happened, the Solyndra's bad luck was very much a supply problem. Their competitors took off the commodity that they were replacing fell in price. And so as a result, they, they right, right, lost Why replace silicon if silicon is cheap now? Exactly. The whole model blows up. It blows up. The, the innovation is, is moot at that point. So, so Solyndra had really bad luck. And the question mm. was, was this malfeasance on the part of the government funding a firm that failed? So Solyndra had bad luck. Firms, firms have bad luck. Stuff goes wrong. Was it malfeasance of the government to have funded a project that ran into unexpected hurdles? I would argue it wasn't. These, these things no happen. Well, especially at the, the startup stage, right? I mean, if you're trying Correct. to invent a new product, who knows if it's going to work? That's the radical uncertainty you're leaping exactly. into uh, when you're trying to push the technology forward. Precisely. And, and, you know, the challenge of venture capital is, you know, figuring out what ventures are feasible, what ventures are merely, you know, castles, castles in the air and, and figuring out the difference. Um, the fact that they, the fact that the true like moneymaker for a venture capitalist is called the unicorn mm. hints at the rarity mm. of that, of the, of the incidents of that sort of success story. So um, going back yeah. to the government, I mean, if we want development, then we need lots of we need lots of innovation. We need lots of actors trying to make these things happen and providing greater access to capital increases the likelihood of a firm with management that does have an idea, the chance to 
do it. And venture capitalists know that some percentage, some large percentage of the firms that they invest in are likely to fail. What the government was trying to do was effectively extend that into fields that they believed or that they argued were underserved by venture capital. So, you know, if, if we think about the if we think about the scope of calamity associated with um, climate change and fossil fuel usage that is in fact linked with climate change, I mean, you know, the term, the money term, the monetary terms are beyond my comprehension. But I suppose a million here or a million there or whatever is is small in comparison to the broader costs of social collapse. So from that standpoint, no, like we should we should have more investment because if we aren't seeing firms fail, then it implies that it implies that the investment is too conservative, perhaps. Jim Comey um, said, like, there, there's a title of the, the book by the guy with ProPublica, the, the chicken shit principle. If you fail in it, this was advice that Jim Comey gave um, the freshman class at the New York South New York DA office was if huh. you successfully prosecute every case that you that you bring, right. you are being too conservative. Right. And I think the same. You're, you're being a bit cowardly by only picking the easy stuff. Precisely. Right. So if we need truly, truly ground shaking change, then there should be more funding going out. And I would argue that since there is always going to be some failure it's only logical that yeah. some percentage of the investments are going to go poorly. Well, what, what I learned from your piece, when, what I didn't learn from the commentary at the time, was that this is actually a fairly large program. Solyndra wasn't the only one to receive a loan. And the other 21 companies did fairly well, including, mm-hmm. including Tesla. I know, um, right? Which is like, <laughs> you know, like pretty great success story. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I would agree. And they say that, you know, with with full distaste for Elon Musk and everything, but I think that the innovations that Tesla have made have been transformative, transformative to the auto industry, transformative from a greenhouse gas perspective, the fact that it's easier to get electric cars now than it was in 2007 is, is a huge, is a huge thing. So I guess the other problem with, with having the sort of Keynesian outlook is it does it opens you up to a lot of criticism of, oh, are you saying you approve of this horrendous business person who uh, benefited from these programs? And well, yeah. no, but right, yeah, at we the don't same have time. to personalize it. Elon Musk, <laughs> the individual, is neither here nor there. What's Correct. relevant mm-hmm. is the technology that it, that the company represents. Yeah, Correct. Totally. So I, I think this is I, I found this a really compelling argument, and just you know the idea that if you're going to give loans to a bunch of yeah, sort of make a bunch of venture capital investments and you're expecting every single one to succeed, that's, yeah, either asking a great deal or encouraging you to be much more sort of, yeah, risk averse than you want to be. The whole point is. Um, But I guess I'm sort of wondering, especially if we think about like, what should we be doing now? Or like, how do we promote this kind of innovation going forward? You know, it did, the failure of Solyndra did really tar the program, at least in the public perception and maybe even the political perception as like a, a, you know, fraud, failure, waste. And so like, is it, you know, even if we can accept that from a like how to induce technological growth perspective, this makes a lot of sense. Like, is it possible to do this in a politically, you know, sort of realistic way or in a politically sustainable way? And like, does the shotgun kind of approach make sense? Or should we be figuring about how to make an investment that's sort of more airtight from 
you know, from criticism? So I think that on some level, any any political program can be criticized for for partisan reasons, um, and that that can go from either direction. Reviewing that reviewing that piece, I don't think I remember that Solyndra actually started before, or not not Solyndra rather, but the the DO the Department of Energy program actually predated the Obama administration. It actually mm. was developed under the Bush administration, mm. so. You know, we, I, I'm as prey, I'm as prey to this as anyone in terms of assuming that the programs that I like are coming from the politicians that I like, and that the programs that I don't like are somehow after the fact attributable to politicians that I don't like. So on some level, the, the political, the political stuff is, is what it is. I mean, some have argued that the private capital is already moving in this direction, William Clark Derry, who is an energy reporter, has written a lot about decreased funding of fossil fuel projects by capital interests for any number of reasons. Whether It's hard to talk about fossil fuel funding before February 2022, given everything that we know that has happened since in Russia and Ukraine. But before you know, before January of 2022, the funding trends were declining investment in oil production. Yeah, in in fossil fuels, in oil production and gas production, and, you know, way, 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 way down in coal. Because the banks want capital discipline. They just want to ride the high prices. And so that's part of it. Either it was that they didn't think that these were profitable ventures, or it was because they were trying to actively limit supply in order to lift prices. So, you know, back in April of 2020, when oil prices were officially negative, Trump and a bunch of other, I think it was Trump and G20 leaders agreed on a program to limit oil production so as to stabilize oil prices because it was devastating parts of the US economy and parts of the global economy. So, you know, these 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 changes have have origins in far farther back than mm. we may consider. And, you know, since 2019, which I understand was a was a peak in US shale production. Mm. Funders, private capital has decreased their investment and some, you know, in 2020, the argument may have been it's because this is a dying industry. Now the story is it's because they want higher prices and more profits in in these fields and and probably the answer is probably some combination of those two. I think that there's a lot more investment in renewable energy production. So, you know, there's, there's a fair argument about whether it's whether it's prudent for the government to step in and provide extra funding Mm -hmm. in the context of private creditors already, you know, changing, changing the concentration of how they approach these projects. But again, I would come back to the scope of calamity associated with sticking with fossil fuels, which is that the better, you know, the better question is what is the cost of not developing alternatives and, you know, beyond beyond funding renewable energy, I think that simple, like simpler strategies for reducing energy consumption ought to ought to qualify for these. Like it's very sexy to develop some new, I don't know, some new renewable form of energy. Uh, it's much more practical and lower cost to weatherproof buildings. 
or to, yeah, to, to weatherproof buildings effectively, or to recommend fewer windows in, in new construction if, you know, glass is a source of heat loss or something. Like, I'm not, I'm not an engineer, so I'm not going right. to give a good Or to build up uh, the public bus fleet. Build up public buses, revitalize electric trolley systems. Um, So, you know, getting back to uh, Solyndra, though. Mm -hmm. So one one of of the other sort of things that I was thinking about as I was reading your piece is, isn't it actually good that the government can discipline failure? Right. Mm -hmm. Like it would, would, you know, not only would it be a sign that we're not sufficiently ambitious if we weren't like funding tons of projects, some of which fail, some of which succeed. But it would also be kind of devastating if a really bad company was just like given loan after loan after loan, even though, you know, they're throwing silicon at the wall and nothing's sticking, right? So like, mm-hmm. this is actually like a really good example of like state autonomy. Correct. Di- directing private investments. And then when it fails, you know, it, it, has, it has the power to say, all right, well, uh, you're done. <laughs> Pack it up. We're doing, we're doing the Elon thing now. Exactly. Yeah, no, that, that is a sign of state power. I mean, I think, you know, if we consider... This is one of the things that I learned about in, in Jim Crotty's class was mm. the, you know, you learn in a standard micro class not to worry about fixed costs. Fixed costs are, are sunk costs. You, you learn not to worry about sunk costs. If you've been standing in line for a while and you see a shorter line open up, you should move to the shorter line. No matter how long you've waited in line, you should leave the movie as soon as you think it's bad rather than wait the whole thing because- you can't change the past. And while that's right. great advice for mindfulness, um, most firms don't don't operate that way. If, if a firm has engaged- And a lot of politicians. No, neither do politicians, right. So, you know, if a firm has borrowed, has, has engaged in immense capital expenditure to develop complicated, complicated infrastructure to enable it to produce some highly technical project, product or service, it's very difficult to convince a firm to just give it up, to sell off that part of the business or just let it fail. And this is, this is a, a factor of how big, big quasi-oligopolistic firms do business. They try to outlast each other in the mm. sphere. If one is failing and you can outlast your competitor, then you get a bigger market share when they fail, but you don't want to leave if, if, that's, if that's something that you've put so many resources into. And so, you know, when, when we think about, I mean, it, it's possible even that in the private sector firms, you know, there, there are mm-hmm. dinosaur old firms that could probably stand to go out of business, but if they have good relationships with their funders, maybe they keep getting funding when, when they should have been allowed to fail. So to imply, and I'm not saying you guys are doing this. And I think to imply that the government is somehow worse at picking is somehow worse at picking winners than the private sector requires a a better case-by-case comparison of old dinosaur firms that continue to receive funding in private capital markets compared to newer competitors or who successfully shield shield themselves from competition due to their position in the marketplace. You know, I'm not saying that firms don't exploit government contracts because they do, but the place to the place to pick that apart is is much more in antitrust spaces, looking at the legal arrangements that shield firms from competition 
and that's that's well beyond my <laughs> that's well beyond my my field. But yeah, I think when we think about how how credit works and how lending decisions are made, there's no a priori reason why the government should be worse or or why a program run by the government should be worse at picking winners than a private than a private operation. Well, and especially if there are sort of clear standards and clear goals that an, an industrial policy is trying to pursue, right? So like mm-hmm. the classic case of industrial policy in developing countries that are trying to pursue catch-up growth is, okay, you need to export. You need to export a lot and you need to, you know, if you're going <clears> to, <throat> we'll help you make bicycles or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And we'll give you lots of subsidies and we'll give you management help and we'll crush the unions for you. But, you know, the one thing you have to do is you have to export. So, that, you know, that's a standard. If you can compete on world markets, then you're great. And if you can't, we're we're withdrawing funding. You're no longer a bicycle producer in Taiwan or whatever it is. Is there anything like that in uh, green industrial policy in America? Do we have like a clear set of standards or is it just like be fruitful and multiply? You know, here's some money. Please be a large solar producer. So the challenge when it comes to oversight in government lending programs in the U.S. is that there are so many government lending programs. There's the Export-Import Bank. There's the Department of Energy program. The Department of Transportation offers loans to institutions and enterprises that want to engage in, in, and states that want to engage in transport infrastructure development. It's practically, you name it, there's probably some, some organization under the auspices of some government department that is quasi-authorized to lend or provide support for finding loans and so on. There is officially an Office of Credit Oversight, but it doesn't appear that every program falls under its auspices. So the Department of Transportation loans has, has specific information on its site about parameters and expectations of having programs reviewed by these I mean, quasi-auditors, credit oversight body. Um, It's not clear to me that all of these programs do. And that has something to do with the cludged quality of a lot of American, of a lot of American infrastructure development and a lot of American development of enterprise, like coming from the government writ large. So on the one hand, the virtue is that there are tons of programs some of which are highly regulated, some of which are poorly regulated, some of which probably attain some golden, some golden mean in between. You know, at the same time, there are some programs that are probably quite permissive in terms of what counts and others that are quite restrictive in terms of what counts. And then when you go another layer to who is reviewing applications and you think about this, status of governmental bureaucracy in the U.S. I've worked in government offices before, and I have greatly enjoyed it. But the worst part of government employment, um, or I mean, beyond the beyond the fact that you're not paid as much if you work in government as you are if you work somewhere else, is that the apparatus of actually getting the job is a nightmare. There's, if you've ever been to usajobs.com, which is the big government job posting place, it's really difficult to navigate. 
it's not clear um, where jobs are available there. It's never like you submit an application, you may hear in two weeks time that you don't qualify or that they're reviewing your application. You may hear two years later that they have discarded your application. So I think another, another challenge when it comes to the operation of US infrastructure, and while I would love, I like government programs, I do think that another improvement to the system that would greatly facilitate the application of it would be, you know, hiring more workers, hiring probably younger people to redesign the computer infrastructure, because I think that there are just a lot of, there are a lot of institutional pathways that are sclerotic when it comes to how the government offers and reviews loans and so on, and how the government, how government bodies review applications and so on. And, and I think that some aspect of those systems is that they're understaffed. Some aspect of that comes from the fact that they're contingent on Congress approving their funding and Congress may or may not <laughs> want to approve more funding to revamp these bodies to make them more practical for, for any number of reasons. So I think that's, that's another challenge that comes into it. But, but broadly, I think that, I mean, I think that the, the, the strength of U.S. funding programs is that there are a lot of them. The challenge is that some of them may be well-designed and others may be less well-designed, but there's no knowing which, which of those is which until you try to apply for the funding. So, so if there were much more, if there were a revamp of that infrastructure, I think it would all improve immeasurably. Maybe some measure of centralization is in order. Mm. I would be a big fan of that. I would be a big fan of that. Um, but I don't know enough about political science to say whether that's possible that's in our possible. right. Yeah. Whether that's possible in our system. Right. So going back to, to Robert's question about the strategies for green industrial policy, right? So we've been talking about why you might want to let a thousand flowers bloom, try to just throw mud at the wall, see what sticks, throw silicon at the wall, see what sticks. And I think he was suggesting that maybe, you know, picking one firm that had a, had a good uh, good shot of you know, pulling off a big transition and just like going all in on that, trying to achieve some kind of increasing returns to scale threshold so that you can actually like break through and make the transition self-sustaining. There was a question in here somehow. Which approach is better? Which is approach or better? Or what do you, yeah, yeah, right, what do you see yeah. as the... Uh, yeah. Right. yeah, shotgun approach <laughs> versus national champion approach. Do you, do you see either one having a clear probably, uh, case to be made for it here? So it probably depends what the end is. You yeah. know, if we're talking about if we're talking about revamping public infrastructure, it could be that championing one firm with design of, let's say, you know, we want to expand rail access in the U.S. Tasking one firm with the with the joys of making that happen would probably be a good way to go. Tasking one auto company with the job of creating better electronic, better electric vehicles would probably be a good way to go. When it comes to, you know, when it comes to components like batteries and stuff, I'm more ambivalent. I think that there's, I think there's space for many firms to work on to where, I don't know, better insulation. You could probably have lots of firms doing that. 
with with little um, with little negative consequences. Batteries may be slightly more challenging because there's a standardization component. So I think enabling better coordination. So you know, enabling enough coordination among firms so that you don't have two parallel networks of chargers, some of which work with some of which are super fast and awesome and work with one particular car's batteries and others that are slow, but work with all batteries, like creating more communication between between those components that are used by everything is probably a good idea. Like you don't, I, I don't love the fact that if I use Mac products, I have to buy fancy chargers that are hard to buy at Best Buy or whatever. At the same time, there are probably small, for smaller components and smaller innovations, it's probably fine to have lots of firms doing it and just sort of duking it out amongst themselves. Like, I, I don't think that there's, I don't think there's necessarily a one size fits all competition story, but I do think that for the bigger things where you do want more standardization, like you want the same gauge rail everywhere so that cars can go everywhere. That's, that's, a, that's an argument for standardization. So I think that there are some cases where, I think there are some cases where natural monopoly and government protective monopolies are probably fine and other circumstances where you really don't want that and it's much better to do the you know, let, let a bunch of firms compete and see, and see whose innovations win out overall. So at, at the end of the piece, uh, you suggested that there's a lot that Biden could still get done without legislation. And you say, especially by pointing climate champions to key agencies, including the Fed, uh, Office of Management and Budget, and Treasury. So what could Biden get done, even without legislation, which may or may not be passing in the near future? <laughs> so to, to Biden's credit, he has really been appointing climate, broadly climate friendly people to positions. We don't have, we don't have fossil fuel executives leading the environmental uh, protection agency. We don't have, I, I mean, we have, we have pro, uh, we have pro renewable energy people working at the Department of Energy. Biden tried to appoint someone who is explicitly pro-climate regulation to the Federal Reserve. And unfortunately, her candidacy was torpedoed by members of Congress who, whose job it is to approve or, or not these appointments. So to Biden's credit, you know, a, a pr- appointing, appointing people to the Department of Interior who are in favor of national parks and preservation of the environment and preservation of water and living standards of people who live in the interior of the country rather than, again, fossil fuel executives who want to issue more drilling and fracking licenses has has effect. You know, appointing judges to courts that take a more measured and nuanced approach to environmental legislation and environmental challenges will will play out on the ground level in ways that may be impossible to predict from from where we're sitting. I mean, I think that I watch the I try not to watch the Supreme Court too closely because it it usually ruins my day when when I do. 
but you know the question of whether the the question of whether the supreme court will nullify environmental legislation is something that seems possible and it may come down to, i mean i don't signs don't seem to point to biden being willing to appoint more justices to the supreme court but it you know that that could that could plausibly tip the balance up at the top so i think that the i think that the i don't want to downplay the importance of cabinet members because I do think it's you know it's really important not to have people who work for chemical companies that you know are killing bees heading the environmental protection agency which was the guy who followed the first secretary of head of the EPA under Trump like there was a lot of I mean if we want to talk about cronyism I think that I think that appointments to cabinet positions are usually like when we talk about cronyism and mm -hmm. corruption in the U.S. case, it's typically more in the sphere of who is who is heading these cabinets and appointing people. So, right. so I think that the Biden administration has done a really has done an admirable job in lessening that aspect, though I'm sure there's. But but without there's, new congressional appropriations, I'm pessimistic. Yeah, this seems, I'm pessimistic. Okay. Personally, right. um, I'm, I, I don't want to discount the the importance of that, and I don't want to discount the importance of executive actions. But without without broader congressional mobilization, I'm I'm pessimistic about about that side of things. Right. So maybe maybe that's one argument for uh, trying to do off balance sheet. Mm. spendings right mm -hmm. um trying to get uh funds from elsewhere or you know funds that you can lever up using finance and debt to sort of expand you know multiply the value of any given congressional appropriation by mm -hmm. tenfold or whatever right uh, this would be something like um the de-risking state mm -hmm. danielle gabor calls the wall street consensus G given, given how much money we need to spend i mean doesn't it make sense to kind of try to draw in the private sector and induce them to spend a lot more given that getting the private sector to spend seems relatively easy compared to getting Congress to spend. Yeah, I feel like a bad leftist. Um, <laughs> so, I feel like a bad leftist in so far again, and again, it comes back to the scope of the calamity of not acting. Yeah. If we think about the political challenges that exist in the US to massive mobilization of funding to mm -hmm. develop the changes that we want, it becomes imperative to think about workarounds. And those are ugly and grubby and may involve, again, compromise with the big private sector actors that are very rich and whose motives we may question. But if there are, but you know, if the head of a big asset management company is writing in their annual reports about the negative effects of this is Larry Fink at BlackRock. Right? Uh, yes, this is Fink at BlackRock. If they are writing in alarmist terms about the consequences of climate change, I mean, it seems like the better alternative to doing nothing is vesting them with some authority to to act in their in their capacity. You know, private small private firms may not have the space, may not have the ability to take on the risk associated with transforming their portfolios. They have strong disincentives to doing it. And part of it 
involves the potential risk of loss of value of liquidating their their life's work, perhaps. And and I don't want to discount, I don't want to discount the emotional and economic and even physical components of that process. A larger firm doesn't necessarily have that same emotional tie to what is going on. A larger firm has a lot more economic space to engage in these sorts of things. And by economic space, I mean a larger firm tends to qualify for better funding, lower cost credit, however they're getting it one way or another to engage in these sorts of operations. And if they have to write off losses, um, they have enough going on that the loss embedded in one firm's output may not ruin their ability to engage in the other operations that they're doing. So I think that when we think about the de-risking state and we think about the, the realities of like the nuts and bolts realities of the transition away from climate harming, climate harming industries towards friendlier to the climate industries, some, something has to start giving. And again, if small firms don't have, have strong disinclination to do it, whether it's because it's too costly or too risky or whatever, letting a bigger firm take over seems like a better option than not doing anything in my in my view anyway so maybe that brings us uh, to the concept of fiscal space then which you've also written a paper on titled a political economy of fiscal space political structures bond markets and monetary accommodation of government spending potential at municipal national and international levels so what is national what is fiscal space first of all um where, where does that concept come from and and why do people talk about it? So fiscal space is a concept that really came to prominence, I think. It's fiscal space is a term that has been used over the 20th century in different, in different phrasings. Earlier in the 20th century, people were more likely to refer to it as fiscal sustainability or fiscal, fiscal power. But in the um, late, in the 1980s, 1990s, the term fiscal space grew in usage. And if you look in development, if you look in development literature, so like papers coming from the IMF and the World Bank, discussions of fiscal space relate to the ease with which a country can generate a deficit without seeing higher costs in some form or another. So if a country incurs a deficit and accrues a debt over time, does that lead to changes in the interest rates that that country ultimately has to pay on its debt? If you've ever heard of the term bond vigilantism, Carville's statement that he wanted to come back as a bond vigilante or whatever, the idea is that, yeah. yeah, he wanted to come back as the bond market, right? The idea is that a bond vigilant, bond vigilantism is the actions by bondholders, private creditors in the secondary bond market who sell off debt if they are unhappy, if they are unhappy with it for some reason. And that reason could be 
They don't think that the country accruing the debt is doing it prudently. They don't like the government actions of the government that is accruing the debt over time or, you know, insert reason here. They're worried about the status of the overall economy and they're trying to move towards more certain more certain assets, more liquid assets. So in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, and I wrote my dissertation about the financial crisis in Europe. And I, as I was starting to write my dissertation, the Eurozone crisis was really starting to get going. But in the early years, so like 2008, 2009, 2010, a big, a, a momentous moment would come when credit rating agencies would downgrade debt issued by different different members of the Eurozone. And so, you know, in the lead up to the global financial crisis, credit rating agencies gave Icelandic bonds better ratings when the banks took on more debt because they believed that the Icelandic central bank would step in and rescue the system if things failed. So people bought more Icelandic bonds in that, in that moment. In the aftermath of the global financial crisis, the credit rating agencies started to downgrade peripheral, peripheral European governments' debt for various reasons. The Greek government was discovered to have much more debt than people believed it had, so they downgraded Greek debt. Ireland's government hinted at ambiguity of how they would approach borrowing to cover their debt in the Eurozone and bondholders and and bond rating credit rating agencies threatened to downgrade Irish debt if they didn't agree to bailout proceedings. So it is a credible threat for issuers of debt in small economies. Um, It is a credible threat, bond vigilantism, is a credible threat for governments that are vulnerable to international perception of their debt. And this is actually is linked with, with what I was talking about with um, Keynes on, on trade and monetary policy, which is that basically larger economies are less vulnerable to private creditors' perceptions of their debt. You know, if you compare Larger in terms of uh, GDP? Larger GDP. Yeah, so larger GDP economies typically are are less vulnerable to these dynamics. It's it's conceivable. It's conceivable that bond vigilantism could tank the value of U.S. debt. I think it's unlikely. But it's conceivable that it could happen. But so people who, so economists like Paul DeGrau, who was writing about the Eurozone crisis in 2012 would compare Irish and Greek debt to GDP ratios with debt to GDP ratios in the US and Japan. Paul Tuz has compared Greece and Ireland's debt to GDP ratios with Egypt's during the Arab Spring and has commented that Greek and Irish ratios of debt to GDP were better than Egypt's during the Arab Spring, it doesn't make a lot of sense that private creditors would react so strongly to what was happening in those economies, but they did. And so debt to GDP isn't the only thing that determines right. fiscal space. So debt okay. to GDP doesn't seem to be the only thing that influences fiscal sustainability. 
So what I was trying to get at in that paper was trying to flesh out the idea of fiscal space as something more than merely the ratio of debt to GDP, which a lot of the literature that discusses fiscal space tends to focus on. And this actually arose substantially out of conversations I found myself having in 20, you know, late 2020, 2021 with friends about how much debt is too much, they would say. So you keep saying it's a good thing that the government is accruing debt, but surely there is a point at which it's not good <laughs> to have too much debt. And I was trying to, and, and in a way, this piece was my trying to wrestle in my own head with what, what is the tipping point? And the tipping point may be different for different economies. So small economies, small economies are more vulnerable to private creditors if there is nothing else that can step in to help out. So what is that thing that can step in to help out? What we've seen in global in the global monetary system since 2008 is that large monetary authorities, central banks, like the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank or farther afield, the Bank of Japan and others, have been more or less willing to use what are called accommodative measures for, for bond markets in, in one form or another. What does that mean? If we look at how the Federal Reserve responded to the onset of the subprime mortgage crisis and its transformation into the global financial crisis, the Federal Reserve under Ben Bernanke recognized that banks were leery of engaging in business because they held toxic assets. They held subprime mortgage-backed assets that were worth very little compared to what the banks had paid for them. And Bernanke understood that with those assets still on banks' balance sheets, they would not engage in the stuff that we want banks to do. So the Federal Reserve under Bernanke offered through different, they're called credit facilities, but they're basically bond buying programs to purchase those assets off of banks' balance sheets. And what was novel about Bernanke's action was that this program wasn't just limited to U.S. banks. It was open to any international banks that had branches and subsidiaries operating in the U.S. So Adam Tuis has written a lot about how the Federal Reserve's willingness to purchase toxic subprime mortgage assets saved the bacon of a bunch of German and Swiss banks that had purchased large volumes of toxic subprime mortgage-backed debt and in the process insulated those banks from the consequences of their holding these bad assets. So how does this all get us back to fiscal space? How does this get us back to fiscal space? European banks mm -hmm. broadly stepped in to bail out domestic financial systems after the onset of the global financial crisis. If you look at every European, if you look at virtually every European country and you look at the ratio of debt to GDP, it all spikes right after 2008, 2009. 
But the problem was that banks in Europe that were less involved in the U.S. subprime mortgage market didn't qualify for the credit facilities, that banks in countries that were heavily involved in those bad markets did. So those governments were at a disadvantage compared to the governments whose banks qualified for Federal Reserve assistance. So as a result, the Irish government, the Portuguese government, the Greek government, the Spanish and Italian government too, but they had a little more insulation until they didn't, paid outsized outsize contributions to save their domestic financial systems that suffered from the failure of the global financial system while not qualifying for the additional support that the Federal Reserve was giving to banks in Germany and Germany and Switzerland mainly. Hmm. So when we then look at interpretations of interpretations of the value or risk of European debt, Mm -hmm. the perception of Irish and Portuguese and Greek debt as toxic owed in some, I mean, hurt those governments disproportionately because they had disproportionately bailed out their domestic financial systems. They had not qualified for monetary accommodation from the Federal Reserve and were forced to use outsized government resources to try to save their domestic financial systems. Can I, so, can I ask a, yeah. just quickly clarifying? So this is, I mean, this is a really sort of crazy story where it's like, it's about private actor, private banks in some European countries and the US Federal Reserve government collectively determine, you know, sort of how much other European countries, governments have to borrow or are able to borrow. But I, I guess I wanted to ask, is it a case, so, and, and this this makes sense sort of how all this happened, but was is the result of what you're describing, is the result that the European countries who didn't have exposure to the US, whose banks didn't have exposure and so didn't qualify for the special help from the Fed, is it the, is a consequence that those national governments had to take on more debt and so had higher debt to GDP ratios? Mm-hmm. Or is it that the the debt to de- then it, that it became sort of a given debt to GDP ratio became more toxic for them or and sort of like had a diff- had a meant that they were at a given debt to GDP, they're now less able to borrow than they were. It's, both. Okay. Both. Both. Uh-huh. So because they issued more debt to rescue their domestic financial systems, they were more vulnerable to private creditors' perceptions of their debt. If we compare this to the US, think about the difference between a state that is trying to rescue a domestic, a a state level economy and doesn't have the funds, but can't trust that everybody will, like people won't necessarily buy state of Michigan bonds. People, like I live in the state of Rhode Island. If Rhode Island incurs an economic crisis, the state of Rhode Island is going to have a harder time raising capital in bond markets than the federal government does of the US, than the federal government of the US does. So what I found really impressive, or what I found really impressive, even moving in the onset of the pandemic, was that um, you know, early, early in March of 2020, 
when Italy was, when the country of Italy was enduring major waves. Actually, actually can we stay in 2000, yeah. uh, the early teens oh, yeah. for one second? Mm-hmm. Uh, just where was the ECB in your story? So, I mean, oh, it, the ECB. Yeah. So, so, I mean, why aren't they helping out Ireland and, and Italy and the rest? I mean, this is a surely a political decision on their part. Um, it was who, a political decision. Right. Yes. So, so what, what, what are the calculations um, behind why is the Fed responsible for determining which European countries get bailed out and why isn't the ECB helping? So it's, it, it depends on some level who you ask. There, the arg, a plausible argument I've heard for the Fed not stepping in to bail out every, every government was that the Fed's concern was about the biggest, the biggest financial players. So in the midst of the Fed's expansive monetary actions, the Fed also authorized what are called swap lines, which is basically the ability of certain central banks and monetary authorities to exchange domestic assets for dollars. So the European Central Bank qualified for a swap line, which meant that if the European Central Bank were at risk of failure somehow, which is hard to, which is hard to comprehend, but they were desperate times. If the European Central Bank were at risk of collapse, it could accrue dollar assets. It could easily accrue dollar assets from the Federal Reserve by providing it with euro denominated assets. The Bank of Japan qualified for one, the Bank of Australia qualified for one, and a few other banks did. I think the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England and the Bank of Switzerland as well. So the European Central Bank qualified for big liquidity support from the Federal Reserve. And ultimately, it was the ECB's management's decision to decide how to how to approach crises across the Eurozone. So while the ECB engaged in some liquidity providing measures, including making it easier for countries to pay, like lengthening the term of the term of contracts for repurchased agreements, which is to say a country's central bank sells an asset to the ECB. And at some point in the future, the national central bank purchases repurchases the asset from the ECB. That's what the repo refers to. The ECB lengthened the term of these operations. It declined to engage in sort of a massive collective euro-wide liquidity operation the way that the Federal Reserve did. Why it didn't choose to do that could have had something to do with the values of different members of the European Central Bank or the Euro Systems Governing Council, certain members of the Euro Systems Governing Council, which effectively is at the heart of the ECB's big liquidity operations opposed providing those resources. The ECB, unlike the Federal Reserve, has a single mandate. It is not supposed to, it is supposed to stabilize inflation. So the fear was that The fear was that too expansive a response to the crisis in the Eurozone would trigger massive inflation and the European Central Bank was not not expected 
to engage in stabilization of stabilization of employment or economic performance and so on. You know, the the dynamics of how how these you know, how these dynamics played out for years, there was a lot of back and forth. Officials from Germany purportedly didn't want to provide monetary assistance to undo monetary assistance to banks in Greece and Ireland and Portugal, unless bad banks were punished and representatives from the US that were trying to encourage the ECB to be more dovish in its response and give more liquidity support said, don't worry about the banks, just give more aid, don't try to punish banks that did bad things. So it, it's complicated. It's not, it's not the simplest story, but at the base, at the base of things, the management, the, the sort of central council of the ECB was more conservative than the management of the Federal Reserve in offering liquidity support. And the irony to me of this is that some of the most conservative members of the ECB's governing council had implicitly benefited from the Fed's comparative largesse to the ECB's relative parsimony in providing that assistance. And there were immense material costs as a result of the, um, of the ECB's reticence to provide liquidity support as private creditors rejected sovereign debt issued by peripheral members and the costs of borrowing for those governments spiked to levels that they couldn't afford. And the ECB and the IMF and the European Council orchestrated bailouts that required those governments to adopt austerity measures. Like the costs of the costs of austerity cannot be, you can't overestimate the costs of austerity in the Eurozone in the form of unemployment, in the form of public health consequences in, you know, like unimaginable, unimaginable costs. And so it wasn't until 2012, 2013, 2014, that the costs of insecurity related to the periphery started to move out towards the stronger members of the Eurozone. So private credit markets wobbled on Spanish debt and Italian debt first. French banks were highly exposed to Italian and Spanish debt, which created tensions in private credit markets for French debt. And there was a worry that if French debt started to were devalued by private creditors, that that would create problems for German sovereign bonds. And once it was clear that those core sovereign bonds were at risk of bond vigilantism, effectively, new management of the ECB stepped in to halt what was happening. Um, so under Mario Draghi and the whatever it takes moment, Draghi foresaw the dissolution of the Eurozone if the Eurozone crisis proceeded as it seemed to be going and determined that the way, at least the mythology is, that the way to save the Eurozone was to step in and effectively provide more ample support to the peripheral states. Um, now, you know, simultaneously with this, the Irish government was paying down its debt and the Portuguese government was paying down its debt 
but in that, after the whatever it takes moment and a lot of political wrangling, again, Adam Chews has written plenty on this. After a lot of political wrangling, basically all of the players in the room that needed to approve it were on board and agreed to a more expansive measure that resembled something like the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing. The ECB committed to purchasing sovereign debt issued by Eurozone members. And as soon as it stepped in and started purchasing debt, even though it, you know, created strictures associated with that. If a country wanted to qualify for this program, they had to agree to labor market restructuring and they had to agree to austerity measures. But once the ECB committed to purchasing debt, the bond spreads, which is to say the difference between the price of, between the yield on Irish bonds and German bonds disappeared. And the funding crisis basically went away. So it was a political, so it was an economic decision. It was a political decision, you know, where you fall on your assessment of how much of this was an economic issue, how much of this was a political issue may, may vary depending on how you, how you look at the, how you look at everything that was happening. Yeah. Do you, do you have a particularly but, strong, do you fall either way on that? I think it was more of a political, I think yeah. it was more of a political problem, but the political problem was, I believe, informed by economic rationale. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, I don't, I mean. So the, the interpretation yeah. that I've heard, and I know very little about Europe, uh, especially compared to you and uh, uh, Professor Tews, but, you know, the, the theory that I've, that seems intuitive to me, at least, is that Germany is an export economy and long term, it's looking to compete against China. And it mm-hmm. thinks that the welfare state in Europe is anti-competitive, basically, and that it'll, you know, raise wages and it'll be hard to sustain the German model. And so what needs to happen is you need to destroy peripheral Europe and their workers and their welfare state in order to, you know, cannibalize them to feed the German export machine. So, it, so it's sort of, you know, a long range vision in terms of like Europe's place in the world, the sustainability of their particular form of life, but like, you know, situated within the global economy. Is that a reasonable take? Then there's also something about this, like <laughs> the, the, the German constitution, right? The, like there's something about like order liberalism and the founding of the German state. And something. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's always mystifying to me as well, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's ordo liberalism is a topic for another two hours discussion. Um, yeah. So I think that I've heard, I've heard the, the crushing, the crushing yeah. of the periphery story. I don't know if I'm ready to I don't know that I'm ready to commit to that narrative I I think that I do think that there is a there is an unbelievably strong anti-inflationary bias in Germany and I think it owes a lot to um, I think it owes a lot to Germany's experience in the interwar period. And I think that it has collectively impacted the, if I can, if there is such a thing as the German psyche, I think this is a indelible component of it. It's, if you go to the ECB's website and you look for resources for kids, like learning materials for kids, there is this, 
bonkers illustrated pamphlet about the dangers of inflation, which is, you know, inculcating in kids who are learning about the ECB that inflation is the number one peril to worry about. It's amazing. Um, well, I'm just impressed that they, that the ECB has education materials for kids. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. And, and I, so I guess that already is, tells you something about German culture. It, it does. And the ECB is modeled strongly after Germany's central bank. This was yeah. one strong component of Germany's agreement to enter the Eurozone was a commitment by the ECB to monetary stability and stabilizing inflation. So I'm, I'm hesitant to say that the desire was specifically to crush, I, I'm sympathetic to the argument, but I'm not quite ready to accept it as the norm. I do think that there is this very, very strong, there's, there's a very strong fear of inflation. And I think that it hinders all kinds of other, all kinds of other economic action that would be really important in Germany. So like the German government's obsession with fiscal neutrality heat has has hindered investment in infrastructure over the past decades it's not it's not a good thing that the wealthiest economy in the eurozone will not spend on green infrastructure to the degree that it reasonably could people around the world would love to buy more german bonds in that fiscal space paper, I talk about the notion of exorbitant privilege, which is the ability of powerful economies to issue and place debt relatively risk-free. People around the world want to buy German bonds. If the German government wanted to borrow, they could, they could sell it all very easily. I think the real interest rate, like the real yield on German debt is negative. Um, people so want to hold German debt that they are willing to accept negative interest rates right. on it. I mean, the, the, um, the nominal yield, I think, is negative, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that that's crazy. Like, if, if you have, if you face funding conditions like that, why not go all in? But there is this strong, this, this strong impediment to going there. So, you know, and it's it's not it's not unlike what what we see in some quarters of the U.S. economy. It's it's different in some respects, but you know, if we think about certain actors in the U.S. Congress that want to hinder, like like Joe Manchin, who are worried about the debt and who are worried about the implications for inflation, like this is a, a commonly held perception that. I, I think is probably on some level moralistic. I don't know, like like a sense that it's bad to consume more than more than you earn, even if that's just how it's always going to work out in an economy. There will always be some who spend yeah. more than they save, and there will always be some who save more than they spend, and that's that's just that. So, so there's you an know, economic morality based on some kind of historical trauma combined with political economy considerations, the vulgar view that I was sort of trying out. And it's, it's an overdetermined sort of course, right? Like there are multiple- But there's probably, I mean, there's probably something to it. Yeah. I think there, there, I think that there is, a, like, if you look at, um, if you look at covers of German magazines, 
every so often there will be some hideous caricature of other Europeans, like a noose made out of spaghetti with a caption about Italian, like Mario Draghi wants to hang the European economy huh. or, or <laughs> Wait, that, if, I, if I was going to get hung by something, spaghetti would be my first choice. I mean, that, that'll break easy. It would, it would, you would imagine. Or, you know, pictures of caricatures of tan people in Portugal on holiday while right. pale skinned Northern Europeans keep hoofing, keep hoofing away to the office or whatever. So there is, there is definitely like some resentment of people on the periphery. And, and so, and so, yes. So like, yes, there is definitely this resentment and yeah. there is a sense of like a moralistic coming yeah. to heal component right. simultaneous with this desperate fear of inflation. And, and given that we right now are seeing inflation, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I guess stay tuned and yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's wild times. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I haven't been keeping up with it as much as I should, but there's, I mean, Germany just dumped a whole bunch into their military, right? I think so. Yeah. So they're, I guess they're, they're, they're starting to print some of the debt, but maybe not for the reasons we'd want. Right. Um, <laughs> this is just my own interest, but I'm curious about like, so I, I'm one of my hats I'm sort of interest I wear and I'm kind of interested in and it's like fiscal federalism in the mm. U.S. and I'm mm-hmm. sort of I mean it, it does seem I was very struck by this point that increasingly in the United States it's the state governments that are doing mm. a lot of the fiscal policy or doing a lot of the spending and they're the ones who are sort of oftentimes constitutionally maybe sometimes through the through the actual dynamics of the uh, of the debt markets least able to to, to borrow, have the, have the, less, the least fiscal space. Um, I mean, yeah. is there yeah any sort of thoughts on like where that's heading or ways to kind of avoid the tensions that it seems to bring up? Yeah. So what I think has been interesting in the past uh, two years is that the federal government, I think, has done kind of the right thing in terms of how it has responded to the struggles for state governments trying to respond to the challenges of the pandemic. So the federal government made grants available to states. So that's, you know, no strings attached money that states could use as they wanted. And the Federal Reserve engaged in monetary or allowed for monetary accommodation of state level spending. So the municipal lending facility said if private creditors hold municipal debt in the U.S., the Federal Reserve will purchase, can, can purchase those assets in the short term, in, in basically in repo arrangements. And what that did was it almost immediately, the announcement of the program quieted volatility in municipal debt markets and bond yields, the cost of borrowing for states shrank almost as soon as the program was announced, like even before the Federal Reserve purchased anything, private creditors chilled out. And there is this element of uh, like what a lot of the monetary accommodation announcements by the Fed, like there hasn't actually been as much use of those programs. Like if you look at the number values of the Fed's purchases of domestic debt or international debt, 
in different programs, the numbers are actually like very, very small. But the mere announcement that it is there, the mere announcement that a country could take advantage of it or that a state could take advantage of it seems to have calmed down, seems to calm down private investors, at least as long as those programs are in existence. They've expired. Most of those programs have expired since late December of 2021. The, the other challenge, and this is something that I, that, that makes me a little queasy because I always want states to get more money is that apparently states haven't spent money. And that's frustrating. <laughs> like, you know, when I've talked with, um, when I've talked with the officials in the Rhode Island state government, there's a lot of tension about, again, this is a testament to how small Rhode Island is that I've met the secretary of state, but she said, there's a lot of tension about whether whether the governor will use those funds in the right way, or will the governor use those funds for hiring overpriced consultants to come in and tell the state to do something that's not in the state's interest. So there seems to be a lot of angst about how to spend those funds and what those funds should be used for, which is bad given that there's so much that, that I would argue states should be spending on. So maybe that's the next project is looking at what, what the actual spending is that's happening and whether, you know, what is it that's actually keeping states from spending that? Because, you know, this is different from 2008, where in 2008, there were big state level funding problems and the government did not, the federal government did not offer state level support. And that was a bad, that was a bad thing. Like it's bad when states don't have funds and have to close down essential services um, or have to privatize municipal services because they can't afford to provide them. So, um, you know, taking, taking a step in to say, okay, well, what is it that's, what is it that's going on right now? Why aren't states spending is I think a, a good next, a good next step. And maybe that gets us to then the final piece that we're considering today. Uh, your review of Crotty and Sankara's books, uh, Can America Truly Turn Socialist, which was written in 2019, uh, <laughs> as as Warren and Sanders uh, looked like they might be, you know, <laughs> the nominees. Yeah, uh, it was a really a hopeful time, right? Like, uh, And then somehow the most conservative of all, Biden got the nomination, but then also, you know, is pursuing this huge agenda or yeah relative to what i've come to expect a huge oh, yeah. agenda i will start by saying um right. you know i wrote that so i wrote that piece in november mm. uh, uh, maybe it was late october it's late october early november of 2019 and elizabeth warren had that brief moment at the top of the polls and then pretty quickly didn't do as well right and so that piece itself was published in December. Mm. And by the time the piece came out, it already felt ex- like I already felt embarrassed by how dated it was given the moment in which I had written it. Mm. And, you know, when, when the primaries really took off in February and March of 2020, I remember thinking, oh, well, we knew this was going to happen. 
the conservative, the most conservative member of the primary is going to get the nomination and I'm not expecting anything. And I've been, you know, extremely pleasantly surprised. I was really pleasantly surprised by Biden. I was not expecting the appointments that he made. I was not expecting the devotion to organized labor, which is my bad. He has apparently always been strongly a strong advocate for labor. And I was not necessarily expecting the appointments for the Federal Reserve that were that were made that was that were historic in terms of appointing African American members of the board and the environmental commitment of Jamie Bloom Sarah Bloom Raskin, um, who was eventually not denied a seat because she knew that people or she who eventually gave up her seat because she knew that she was not going to get voted in. I have been really, really impressed. This is the most progressive Democratic president I can remember in my lifetime. And it really harkens back to what I think the best of what I think the best of FDR and Lyndon Johnson were in terms of their contributions to trying to transform trying to transform the US welfare state. To me, it has been an exercise in remembering that the rest of Congress still matters in, and, you know, a president can want to do something. A president leads the way, a president makes the appointments and it is Congress that powers it, that powers it through. Um, And it's a reminder of how divided, of how divided opinion is in the country about a lot of this stuff. So, so I will say from a political and economic side of things, um, I don't think Joe Biden will bring us uh, socialism, but I do think that- how, how about liberal socialism? Liberal socialism. I don't think he's going to do that either. But, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I think that he does want to, I do think that he is unhappy with the worst of capitalism. I get that impression. And, you know, maybe that's that that's probably naive. It's probably hopelessly naive. Most of the country does not want to get rid of capitalism, I, I believe. So it would be silly to it would be silly to campaign on eradicating capitalism if you know it's not going to win the presidency is is where I've where I come out on that. But when it comes to, you know, parsing, parsing the differences between who is, who is a capital, who is a liberal capitalist, who is a liberal socialist, who is a, who wants plant, who wants planned markets or who wants managed capitalism? Like, I, I think I see him as a managed capitalism guy, if I had to pick. And ultimately, I think that that's what I liked about Bernie Sanders. And that is what I liked about Elizabeth Warren when they were in the primary. I don't think that any of them, none none of them is a laissez-faire letter rip approach to markets and markets of all sorts. And that's, uh, I mean, I don't know that that's a promising thing if, if he can hold on. 
So I, I wanted I wanted to ask you about Equati's um, book because it's 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 fairly provocatively titled, right? It's called Keynes mm-hmm. Against Capitalism: His Economic Case for Liberal Socialism, especially given that you know the sort of socialist reawakening in America has sort of has brought back the older view of mm-hmm. what liberalism is. It's about free markets. It's about neoliberalism, and I don't know, it's pro-capitalism, right? So, mm-hmm. so labeling Keynes's political views liberal socialism is fairly provocative. So I was yes. wondering if maybe you could lay out for us what liberal socialism is um, as a concept. Yeah. Um, so as Crotty puts it in the book, Keynes was appalled by what he observed in Russia in the early 20th century. He did not want anything that resembled Stalinism or, or how he perceived Russian socialism to be proceeding in practice. He, at the same time, did not like what he saw in Gilded Age, laissez-faire capitalism. So he wanted to chart some middle way between, between these two poles. And the name that Crotty gives this is liberal socialism, which is the provocative thing to call it because Keynes liked capital. He writes approvingly of capitalists in the general theory. And he says, you know, it's appropriate. It's appropriate for people to be motivated by profit. It's appropriate for private for private capital to be rewarded for prudent decisions with a yield on their investment. But where Crotty was getting at, I believe, is that if you look at the capitalism that Keynes is advocating, it is so brought to heel as to be something different from what we might consider to be capitalism. Now, what does this mean? Well, he's ambiguous. He's a little ambiguous about this. And to be fair, I think that many people who talk about socialism and capitalism are extremely ambiguous about how they describe this stuff. There's a certain, if you listen to a podcast like Chop a Trap House or something like that. There will be blithe references to stuff that is capitalist or not without a lot of detail about what that actually entails. And it's fine. I'm not, I'm not demanding, um, I'm not demanding analytical rigor from, you know, from the chop out guys necessarily, but there is this, there's a between the lines signaling that I identify in writing by publications like Jacobin Magazine that may describe policies professed by certain politicians as socialist and similar policies professed by other officials as capitalist. And it's not necessarily clear looking at the surface what makes one capital like democratic socialist and what makes one social democrat necessarily there seems to be a lot of between the lines signaling about what is good is socialism and what is bad is capitalism 
and I'm, I don't want to, um, I don't want to cast aspersions on Jackman magazine because there's a lot of nuanced, um, there are many nuanced pieces in there talking about the, the virtues of markets or planning or whatever. So I don't want to imply that all pieces from any leftist outlet is, is extremely cavalier about this, but, but there is a certain, when one leaves the definition of capitalism and socialism ambiguous, which I do ultimately think that Crotty and Sankara both do in their books, which is a which is a bit of a problem given <laughs> that they both have socialism in, in the title, it does leave it at sort of a it leaves it sort of hand wavy about what the actual practical implications are. I think ultimately, if you read, if you wanted to read Crotty's book or Sankara's book through the lens of today, they're both basically arguing for a left liberal managed capitalism sort of scenario. They don't like when work, when employers exploit workers. They don't like when capital markets run amok and create crises that everybody has to absorb in one way or another. And how they how they see going about it differs to some degree in terms of practice. So I, I think that in Keynes's narrative about, or sorry, in Crotty's narrative about Keynes, he talks a lot about the tempering of Keynes's approach to his message. So a big part of Crotty's argument about Keynes's socialism or what he believes to be Keynes's socialism come from speeches that Keynes gave in the interwar period that were highly critical of capitalism. So he talks about the speech that Keynes gave in Ireland that is highly critical of the casinos of capital, like the financial casinos. And I think he invokes national self-sufficiency as an argument for downscaling domestic economic activity to focus more on what is real rather than what is financial. So in some ways it suffers a bit from the, you know, if you pick, if you pick from Keynes's large body of work, some of his arguments look very socialist. Some of his arguments look more capitalist, but another part of Crotty's argument is that if you look at he argues that Keynes is more muted radicalism by World War II was tempered by the fact that he had learned that the way that he could keep an audience in power was by tempering his message, was by not being such a firebrand as to say the New Deal isn't radical enough, uh, which, which, he, which was his opinion about the New Deal, or saying that Lord Beveridge's guaranteed employment program didn't have a, you know, a snowflakes chance in hell of passing with that framing and advising to mute the language a lot in order to actually get something passed. So when I, you know, when I think about what Crotty is talking about in Keynes, I think he's arguing specifically that the dampening of the radicalism of Keynes's message was a political choice to try to gain something that would adequately that would adequately dampen the worst aspects 
of capitalism, that it was a pragmatist approach to transforming capitalism into something that was better for society as a whole. The challenge is that when you, I mean, I, I invoke Eric Olin Wright in the, um, in the book yeah. or, or in, in the piece rather, right. yeah, whose yeah, yeah. book, How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century, right. contrasts four different approaches to, four different alternative approaches to capitalism. I, I don't remember all four of them, but like on, in the yeah. smashing capitalism, dismantling capitalism, taming capitalism, resisting capitalism, and escaping capitalism. And smashing capitalism is like Lenin. You just yes. want to like, it's a revolution, it's bloody. Dismantling capitalism is, I think, like decommodification. Mm-hmm. That's like sort of like public health care, public transportation, sort of right. like slowly mm-hmm. trying to make sure that like some parts of life just like aren't right. driven by profit. Taming capitalism, I guess that's like, it's like fixing the, the business cycle story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, you know, shaving off some of its excess is like a minimum wage or right. something like that. Right. So like it's capitalism for sure, but it's, you know, modulated and sort of within a narrow bounds. Mm-hmm. Resisting capitalism and escaping capitalism. I think escaping capitalism is like anarchism. It, like, or like going off the grid. Right. Yeah. Where you like in the woods or something. Mm-hmm. Or you have like an anarchist commune where. Yeah. When I read that book in context of reading this piece it's like some of these decisions can only come at the state like some of these options can really only operate at the state level and some of them are individual responses to to the world at large and you know if everybody escapes escapes the market system by forming hippie communes in the woods good for those people maybe, but what does that leave everyone else? And I think that, I mean, ultimately the critique, and and I think Sankara's book is clear-eyed about the challenges of the the challenges inherent in taming capitalism, and Crotty is too. Like the the last chapter of Crotty's book talks about what happens, what happens to the Keynesian legacy in basically the second half of the 20th century, which is a pessimistic story about the dismantling of welfare states, the deregulation of capital markets, um, the deregulation of all kinds of other markets in ways that have contributed to greater exploitation and greater growth of profits and widening disparity domestically and abroad. And at the same time, like, I don't, I mean, do we want do we want a bloody revolution that smashes capitalism? I I don't see it working out nicely. Not in this country. No. <laughs> I mean, no. It, it, you know, in this country there are more guns than people and they're heavily concentrated in some people's hands and Correct. not others. And uh, mm-hmm. the people who don't have the guns are, are the ones who are my friends. Right. <laughs> so, so, it's, so it's just not a plausible strategy. So, so, the, so the, you know, the anti-capitalist milieu has to pursue a kind of mix of mm-hmm. all of these various different strategies, a little bit of taming, a little bit of dismantling, a little bit of resisting. Correct. And, you know, don't put your, don't pull all your eggs in one basket. And that's, that's the kind of beauty of Keynes is that he opens up this rich mm-hmm. field for sort of multiply pursuing simultaneously all these other, all these strategies um, as Correct. opposed to just, hoping the proletariat one day will be the one with the guns 
Right, right. <laughs> There's this great quote from Keynes that uh, that Crotty draws out. He says, the republic of my imagination lies on the extreme left of celestial space. Which, you know, it's just like such a great like and poetic way to put like your your value commitments. The next line, though, which I think actually might not be quoted is yet at the same time, I feel that my true home, so long as they offer a roof and a floor is still with the liberals. I'm going to tell you a story, which is that Jim Crotty said something very similar at one point in the grad lounge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wait, he, he said something similar about- He said um, something very similar that, that if, if it all came down to it, yeah. um, he, didn't, he didn't really think that the proletariat would have him right. at that yeah. point, by that point in his life. So when I read the book, it was uh, very, it reminded me a lot, like the narrative that Crotty tells about Keynes reminded me a lot about Crotty the professor, Crotty uh, the okay. um, uncomfortable middle ground right. in a department of people who were profoundly neoclassical, who were orthodox Marxist, or who just didn't, were, were really just there to do policy. Crotty occupied a space in the middle of someone who cared about power dynamics, who lamented exploitation, um, and also wanted better policies. And I think in some ways, this, this narrative about Keynes draws from his own experience as, as a teacher. Like, I think that you know, listening to his story about Keynes muting his tone over time reminded me of stories that Crotty told me about how, how one survives in the complicated environment of a department, how one navigates the competing interests, how one periodically compromises in the name of the bigger project. And, you know, what's interesting is that UMass had a history as a radical department that came together under improbable circumstances. And that radical faculty at the helm of the department knew that if if deans and other administrators at the University of Massachusetts had any reason to dissolve the program, they would, they would do it. So those old guard faculty did what they could to create the space to do the work that they did, which occasionally meant punishing grad students for exercising extremely radical impulses in the classroom and occasionally compromising and working on university related stuff that may not have truly suited their revolutionary impulses. And I believe that the, that the spirit of why they were doing it was correct. They wanted a space where they could train people to do different work. And, and that I think is the, the joy and the challenge of the pragmatist in the middle is trying to chart that path of doing the transformational stuff while also getting, getting away with it or keeping the people who could stop it from getting too mad and quashing it before it gets started. And sometimes that's 
And sometimes that leads to disappointments, but you know, every day we wake up and we try again. That might be a good place to, to leave off by perhaps any, any further things, Nick? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nina. That was yeah. fantastic. I, we yeah. just went for two hours. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> thank you so much for letting me just go. Um, I really, really appreciate the chance to come and talk. And I, uh, I, I guess I've just been rambling for two hours, but, um, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson. The podcast is supported financially by the University of Chicago Program for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review, which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon, We would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.